Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this meeting of the historical group. This evening's lecture, Martin Baker, much more than ejection seats, will be given by Brian Miller, who joined Martin Baker Aircraft Limited as a, um, in... 1961 to assist in the development of rocket ejection seats. Two years later, he became the company's first defects engineer, and in this job, he was in daily contact with Sir James Martin. In 1965, he became the company's um, representative in the US, and in 1972, marketing manager and head of marketing in 1985. Um, he's been with Martin Baker all his working life, and I know no one better qualified and experienced to talk about the history of a quite remarkable company. Could we welcome Brian to uh, talk to us tonight? Well, good evening. Um, I've been retired three years, so one of the first things I need to do is to say that anything I say this evening is not uh, attributable to Martin Baker per se. Um, I will still talk about the company as us and so forth, because with 45 years' experience in the in the firm, it's hard to do otherwise. But um, as I say, I, I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of Martin Baker um, I need to thank the company for access to their uh, archives. I've dealt with these archives many, many years. And uh, I went and saw uh, the sons of Sir James Martin, John and Jim, who run the company now, uh, joint managing directors. And they, they very willingly said, yep, anything you need, just help yourself. And therein lies the first problem. Uh, probably 100,000 slides in that uh, organisation and it was very hard to select um, some to show you this evening. And I started off trying to keep it to like one a minute or something like that. Forget it. We've got 87 to get through. <laughs> uh, uh, and we'll, we'll do our best. Uh, we'll certainly try and keep it to the hour. Um, I'm going to be talking this evening about... Uh, the other things that Martin Baker have done, I, I will inevitably bring in ejection seats. I mean, uh, an ejection seat man through and through, you can't get away with a bit of ejection seat stuff in there. But the company really did do lots of other things. And um, I, I wanted to bring some of that out. Unfortunately, some of the really juicy stuff I couldn't find in the archives. Um, some of the uh, programs that were secret uh, Secret no longer, I think. They've fallen by the wayside long ago. There just wasn't any material on that. So I'll, I'll talk about some of the things, as long as I remember them, uh, to, to interject them in the right places. But otherwise, um, um, hopefully a lot of the material will be new to you. Uh, some of it might be familiar. Anyway, without any more ado, we'll get the show on the road. So... Um, the story inevitably begins with this man, Sir James Martin. Uh, started as Jimmy Martin, an Ulsterman, um, an engineer. I remember John Fozard, who was the chief designer of the Harrier, 
saying to me, if you, the best short course in engineering is an hour with Sir James Martin. Well, I was lucky enough to work for him for 20 years, and I can absolutely attest to the fact that he was a, he was a God-given natural engineer. He didn't have a formal education in engineering, and that was the reason why he was um, not uh, admitted to membership of this society. Um, not, that is, until he was made an honorary fellow uh, many years later. But he really did know what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he had this intuitive feel for it. Um, I think rather uniquely, the drawings that were done in, the, in our drawing office were almost pictorial. You even had things like rivet heads shaded uh, so that he could visualize it. But he knew what he liked, he knew what he didn't like. Um, he would prowl around the drawing office in the middle of the night and uh, people would quite often find written in unmistakable black pen right across their work, rubbish or see me. And in those days, that was perhaps two or three weeks' work that he'd just written across. But it was his company. He was a managing director, chief designer, and owner, and what he said went. Well, the, the plan from the beginning was to build aircraft, and this year uh, is the 80th anniversary of the founding of Martin Baker Aircraft Works. Oh, sorry, Martin's Aircraft Works. Baker came later. Um setting the company up in 1929 and it's also the 60th anniversary of the first emergency ejection and we'll touch on both of those as we go through the lecture. So this was the man, the foundation and while we've got the picture on the screen I've seen that face several times with the comments like so what went wrong or tell me what you've done wrong or something like this. He was a a difficult taskmaster, but a very kind man and a great boss. They started off having to generate money, and this was one of the first uh, products that the company produced back in uh, 1929, a wind indicator to go uh, on an airfield to show the direction of wind. And also, of course, at night, you needed to have it illuminated. And this one, much bigger, there's Jimmy Martin at the bottom, has a whole set of lights on it so that at night, and this was a problem in 1929, uh, night flying was becoming uh, <clears throat> much more common, but there wasn't a, an easy way to see wind direction when you approached an airfield. <clears throat> this device addressed that. Uh, it was purchased and uh, installed at Heston, and there were a couple of others, but really he wanted to build aeroplanes. That's really what it was all about. The uh, first aeroplane they worked on, uh, the, what became the Martin Baker One, is shown here in mock-up form, together with the first in, uh, two employees. You've got uh, Eric uh, Stevens on the right there, who joined Sir James in 1921, a uh, long time before there was any Martin Baker uh, company, and Jim Clampett, who joined shortly afterwards. And these two men stayed with uh, Sir James all their working lives, and Eric uh, became the only chap who became a director who wasn't family. He was the works director uh, and had 5% of the shares, and uh, uh, he, he richly deserved it. This was the uh, mock-up of the first aeroplane, as I say, about the only picture uh, that exists like this of the mock-up itself. And originally, it was meant to have a, an engine in the back here. It was going to be a 
two-seat touring aircraft, driving uh, through a, a shaft, uh, an airscrew up the front with a gearbox uh, in the front up in here. Uh, luckily, that didn't go too far before uh, a redesign took place and um, the um, uh, company um, started building a much more efficient aeroplane. This is the uh, the first factory, uh, Martins, as you can see, aircraft works there, and um, the first five employees. Uh, Sir James is taking the picture, so that's the only reason he's not in it. But they say from small acorns, mighty oaks grow, and that's still on the same site. It was a derelict building. They moved in, restored it, and started to build aeroplanes. Talk about confidence. I mean... Just amazing that they, they had that much confidence to think that they could really make a go of it. In 1934, um, the company really did move into top gear. And on this uh, occasion, it uh, shows the three principal architects, Jimmy Martin in the middle, of course, uh, Valentine Baker, who gave his surname to the uh, uh, company. He was uh, a test pilot. Uh, very skilled aviator, and uh, uh, Francis Francis on the right here, who was the man with the money. Uh, he had uh, a lot of money uh, from Standard Oil. Uh, he, he was a very wealthy man, and he decided uh, uh, to put, invest some of that money in this little company to uh, help it build better aircraft. He didn't want his name on the letterhead. He was involved in all sorts of other ventures, and so the company became Martin Baker. The Baker part of it, Valentine Baker, he was a remarkable chap. Um, a, uh, he had two careers. He joined the Navy initially, was wounded, invalided out, remustered in the Army, not mentioning that he'd actually been invalided out uh, in the Great War, and um, uh, be eventually became an observer and then a pilot, and went on to uh, have 15 victories, the Military Cross and the Air Force Cross. Um, he became an instructor pilot uh, after the war and um, built up a, a very, very uh, good circle of friends. And he brought to the company all these contacts that he had with some very senior people, he was teaching members of the royal family to fly. He taught Amy Johnson. Um, you know, He really was very well known. And so he was able to give this... Um, networking, as we'd call it today, to the company uh, and to attract investment from Francis Francis and support from the ministry and so on and so forth. He played a very, very important role. He also, of course, test flew the aeroplanes and he, um, Martin was an engineer, he was a pilot and he was able to uh, instill some pilot's views and requirements uh, into the designs. And so we really got going with the uh, first of the Martin Baker aircraft, the MB-1, uh, shown here, a light touring aircraft. We saw the initial mock-up earlier, very simple construction. And we see the aeroplane here actually being uh, assembled at Denham. There's that mock-up in the background. It's in that building you saw in the photograph. And it's a, a very simple structure uh, made up with steel tubes, bent round formers, flattened, and bolted together, and it meant that they could build an aeroplane with very, very little resources. Um, he said he had to because he didn't have any resources, but it meant that it was a, a very economical design and it could be made uh, very simply. 
It had folding wings, and here's Jimmy Martin turning the crank that would fold the aircraft wings back to make it easy to uh, store. Uh, there's uh, Baker in that picture um, watching the wing folding process going on. And uh, the aeroplane ended up with a very nice, clean design, uh, enclosed cockpit, monoplane at a time when most aircraft were open cockpit biplanes, and uh, a very neat cockpit layout um, that uh, really made it quite an attractive aircraft for touring. The aeroplane made its first flight in uh, 1935, uh, but... Um, They'd founded the company of the year of the Great Crash and the depression was still dragging on and there, no, there were no buyers for this particular aeroplane made by this little unknown company. So if you um, fail at that, you pull your team together, which had now grown to this uh, size, and move on to the next project. Now, this is the, the group of employees, but one chap, Jimmy Martin, and Eric Stevens in his white coat. But one chap in particular that I want you to have a look at there is Alan Rowlett-Jones. Uh, he was the only chap in the company with a degree. Um, he was uh, the stress man, and he played an enormous role in the design of Martin Baker equipment in later years. He, he really was an absolutely first-class engineer. And he is also the chap who gave me a job at Martin Baker's. He interviewed me. He was a chief engineer or chief technician. Um, and he employed me, and um, I worked in his department while he really was the one behind developing the ejection seat rocket motor. So he played a major role, and he's, he's often... Well, you never see anything mentioned about him in the, uh, the write-ups. But you can see, still a very small company. When they moved into building an eight-gun fighter, this was essentially to the same spec as the Spitfire and Hurricane, and you can see one unique feature, there was no fin. The whole rear of the fuselage was the rudder, but Martin had worked out there was enough side area here that he wouldn't need a fin. You can see Baker's uh, influence. Look at that cockpit. Marvellous all-round visibility for 1937. Uh, Spitfire and Hurricane had no rearward visibility except through a, a, um, a rearview mirror. This one, you had a pretty much a 360-degree view. Uh, to get the aeroplane up and running, initially he had a fixed undercarriage, uh, Napier dagger engine, and uh, the aircraft was produced using the same technique of uh, forming tubes. Very early on, initial test flights showed that the aeroplane lacked directional stability, and the fin gradually got bigger and bigger. Um, there's a shot of it, and it's about this big. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like a little pimple on the back. And you can imagine Martin being dragged into getting this fin bigger and bigger uh, by the test pilots. A uh, view of it at Harwell, ready for its first flight. And here's some other shots, a picture of it actually in the air down here with that little vestigial fin and with a, a larger fin at the top there. This is a uh, close-up of the cockpit area. And also the, the guns, the eight guns on the front here. And this piston was installed because with no fin, if the aeroplane turned over, the pilot would obviously be uh, under severe risk of being crushed. So this was linked into the uh, flap system and uh, came up automatically to act as a rollover bar. 
there were a number of good features on that aeroplane. Um, all of the uh, panels on the side here were quick release. They would all come off. The engine could be changed very, very quickly. It was a power egg. Cranks could be inserted in the wing, and that would open up to provide a seat for the armourer and a, a rest for his toolbox so that he could arm the guns very, very quickly. Tremendous amount of thought went into this. It had the performance of the early Spitfire and Hurricane. It was um, of the same class, and it's a great shame the aeroplane uh, never went into production. I, I think it, it deserved it, and there were a lot of people at that time who felt that it had a great deal of promise. It had uh, some difficulties in handling. It, it could have been uh, better, but it was all of it was fixable. But uh, the time was not taken to fix the aeroplane. Martin would have uh, uh, had the aircraft with a retractable undercarriage, you can see here, had it ever gone into production. Uh, but that was not to be the case. And so no aeroplanes were actually produced other than the uh, prototype. Just as a point of interest, by the way, um, at Stafford, they've just found the forward uh, canopy assembly of the MB1 in storage up there, and uh, it's been delivered to Martin Baker's. While all this was going on, he designed an airliner. Notice, no fin again, with a rudder at the back. Um, and he also looked at a twin-engine fighter with um, 12 machine guns in, mounted in the fuselage here. Again, no fin. And unusually rudders on the nacelles as well as on the, the tail of the aircraft and a retractable undercarriage. And that would have uh, met the requirement for aeroplanes like the Whirlwind um, that uh, were produced by Westlands. So you can see he was producing all sorts of stuff uh, as the uh, program or time went along. Uh, with the, uh, while the MB2 was still uh, being worked on, uh, he was working on the MB3. He realized the pace of, of development was so rapid that um, it was going to be uh, essential for him to keep looking ahead, keep producing something better. And the MB3 really was an outstanding aeroplane. Uh, he wanted the Rolls-Royce Griffin for it, or at least a Merlin for the prototype. Uh, none could be spared, and he had to have the Napier Sabre, which was a very, very underdeveloped engine at that time. You can see six 20mm cannon, unprecedented level of firepower, and that aeroplane uh, was assembled by his small team at Denham, and uh, here it is uh, on the stocks being built. And interestingly, I hadn't noticed before, but back in here is a second fuselage under construction, obviously the second prototype. The aeroplane would have had a blister canopy uh, had it gone into production, and there's a number of broken-hearted modelers who built this uh, model of the aeroplane that never existed because uh, they didn't realize that it actually had the uh, slope back uh, on the real aircraft. There's a close-up of the 620mm cannons. And the team who uh, finally assembled it, that's uh, being on its rollout at Denham. You can see it's a very, very purposeful-looking aircraft, ready for its first flight at wing. And there's uh, Valentine Baker in front of the aircraft. Sadly, it only lasted two weeks and ten flights. Um, it first flew on the 31st of uh, August, 1942. And on the 12th of September, Baker took off in the aircraft. The engine failed shortly after takeoff. He tried a false landing. He was too low to bail out, and he had this valuable prototype anyway. Uh, 
and the aircraft went through a hedge, um, flipped over on its back, caught fire, and Baker was killed. So a double tragedy with the loss of the uh, his partner and the loss of the brand new prototype. They looked at a uh, making the second version with a Centaurus engine. Uh, they also looked at uh, using an American engine and also the Griffin. But uh, Martin realized that there was no point going on with the MB4 and he went straight to really what was his masterpiece, the MB5. And this is the uh, Rolls-Royce Griffin uh, engine at last, contra-rotating propeller and a really outstanding uh, fighter aircraft. There's a picture of the very early aeroplane with, you guessed it, a small fin. Um, it was one of the only things that needed to be changed. And very quickly, it uh, went on to have a much larger fin. There's a picture of it taxiing at Chelgrove. And um, again, the aeroplane was designed for ease of maintenance. And that contra-rotating propeller here gave rise to Martin designing a special lubrication unit um, up to this time, contra-rotating props had to be serviced between every flight. And this was a heck of a servicing penalty. So Martin came up with this idea of having a uh, centrifugally powered um, lubrication unit. He installed it in the aeroplane, and although the MB-5 never went into production, we continued to make those for the Shackleton for about the next 30 years. So that was one piece of kit from that aeroplane that lived on. There's a view of the cockpit. Now, that isn't under construction. That shows you the access you could have to that cockpit for maintenance. All of the panels were quick release. Uh, the uh, instrument panel could swing out. The side consoles would swing sideways. It was a really neat piece of kit. There's a vertical view of the cockpit. Uh, unusual for the time, it's got a floor. It's very, very neat. Most of the aeroplanes then, if you dropped something, it was gone. It was down in the bowels of the aircraft somewhere, but this was, was very, very neatly done. That picture shows a marvellous view the pilot had from the uh, cockpit, um, low pass over Chelgrove, and the pilots who flew that, I know, met several of them, said it was an absolutely super aeroplane, and uh, the uh, famous uh, test pilot, Jan Zurakowski, flew for Gloucesters and then for uh, Avro Canada, uh, when asked in his uh, opinion what was the best aeroplane he ever flew, unhesitatingly he said the MB5. The problem was the MB5 was prop, and by 1944 when it first flew, the jet was already obviously the future. There's a chap in America who's built a, uh, or trying to build a replica, but as you can see, it's got the Rolls-Royce Griffin, uh, but it leaves a lot to be desired, and I understand that it's up for sale. I don't think it's ever actually going to, to fly, but uh, it was nice that somebody uh, thought enough of the aeroplane to try and make a copy of it. And by the way, that's going to be a flying copy. So Martin moved on to jets, and there's a jet MB-5, got the MB-5 wing, um, using a, a jet engine. He also um, looked at a, a twin engine, uh, two Rolls-Royce Griffins uh, fighter using the MB-5 wings uh, with a, a beam layout, or a pod and boom type layout. And he also did a jet version of that. Um, and this is all while he's doing the early work on ejection seats and all the other stuff. The ejection seats were very much just a, a sideline 
at that time. Now there's a pretty advanced looking piece of kit for 1945. Um, um, very advanced jet, uh, Delta, and with an ejection seat by this time built in to the uh, cockpit here, and that whole fin assembly would come off, um, enabling the seat clear passage to eject. And finally, he went for a twin engine version. Now that would have been a really hot ship, as our American cousins would say. Um, but none of these were produced, and by this time, uh, the company saw its future in producing ejection seats. Now, while all this was going on, he was doing all sorts of other things, and one of those was this device the, uh, for the Spitfire. Uh, Aircrew were finding difficulties in opening the aircraft canopy uh, to bail out. Um, they were also finding difficulty in getting out through a fairly narrow gap with the parachute on the backside, and so Martin came up with the idea of releasing the canopy and he had this rubber ball um, which would normally be stowed up in here uh, and you pulled the rubber ball, it removed pins from the side via cables around the frame and the whole canopy would separate from the aircraft giving a pilot a much better chance of escape. And this was really the first involvement uh, the company had with uh, aircraft safety. Another device he worked on was the barrage balloon cable cutter. I think most of the audience are familiar with the barrage balloon concept. This device, that sort of size, was buried inside the aircraft wing. This part was in the wing. That was on the leading edge, and this piece stuck out of the front. If you look at the Lancaster in Hendon, they've got these fitted all along the leading edge of the wing. If the airplane flew into a cable, cable would hit the leading edge, uh, which was reinforced, slide down, operate that trigger, release the firing pin, fire the cartridge. That would drive a hardened steel cutter, which would cut the cable and the aircraft could carry on. These were used in all Bomber Command aircraft and the company, there were 250,000 made during the war and the company itself produced 80,000 of them. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work going on. And for the first time, really, here you've got the ingredients of the ejection seat, cartridge, firing pin and spring, uh, sear and release mechanism. And he used the same sort of uh, pieces of equipment and, and gear when he later came to work on ejection seats. He didn't like the blisters on the wings. He didn't like the uh, feed for the cannon shells, for the guns for the MB-5. So he came up with a completely new design, um, which was not affected by high G. The other ones tended to jam if you uh, put a lot of G on the aircraft and tried to fire the guns. And this flat feed for the uh, Hispano cannon was used um, on a, a wide variety of aircraft. In 1944, the company was asked to look at a means of assisting aircrew from escaping from aircraft. And the first approach, uh, by the way, they weren't the only company. There was another company, uh, ML Aviation, at uh, White Waltham in Berkshire, were also asked. And both companies actually came up with a similar scheme, which was this swinging arm um, escape system. Now, this really does look Heath Robinson, and I used to think how primitive it was, but in actual fact, it is a neat piece of engineering, because the pilot has to leave the cockpit standing up. In an aeroplane like a Spitfire or a Tempest, there wasn't room. It wasn't designed for an ejection seat. You couldn't get an ejection seat in there and the pilot and eject him in a sitting position without taking his legs off. 
So the pilot had to come out standing up. So there was no room for an ejection seat, so the escape system had to be external to the aircraft. And this is exactly what this did. It was, it was actually quite elegant. You had this arm fitted along the back of the aircraft. There was a large spring underneath it, which was compressed, and it, this arm was latched down. It was hinged at the back there. When the moment came for escape, the pilot would jettison the canopy with a lever. Continued operation of the lever would release his seat harness and also release this uh, swinging arm. The latch, uh, the sorry, the arm would raise. Hooks on the front were engaged in rings on the shoulder harness. It would extract him from the cockpit. The airflow under this arm would provide the motive power and the pilot would be tossed clear of the fin. It, it, it did everything they asked for. They did uh, wind tunnel tests, and we see uh, the model here that was actually used for wind tunnel testing, and that still exists. That's at uh, uh, Denham uh, in the uh, little museum that they've got there now. So um, it was uh, tested. It was a good concept, but it was already by 1944 obvious that the war was coming to a close new design, new aircraft were coming along, they wouldn't retrofit, and so the work went ahead to develop ejection seats. And this was the uh, product of that work, the uh, pre-Mark I ejection seat, and all it did was get you out of the aeroplane. Parachute was under here, survival kit was in the back, um, you uh, ejected by pulling the handle, it fired you from the aircraft, and you then had to undo your harness, undo your... Uh, connections to the seat, to communications, oxygen hose, jump off the seat and pull your D-ring, which is on the uh, waist belt there, to open the parachute. That was tested by this uh, cheeky chappy, uh, Benny Lynch, who I knew very well indeed, a uh, real character, you know, my goodness. Uh, he'd done a lot of the early work on the test rig, he'd been hurt, uh, he got over it and came back and volunteered to ride the seat for real. Uh, went up and uh, ejected himself, went through this release process and proved that the seat would work. He did 17 ejection tests altogether, more than any anybody else has ever done. And on the last one he did, uh, he nearly didn't get a shoot. Um, the uh, released face curtain recocked a mechanism on the seat. I mean, it was a chance in a million, but it prevented the seat working. And he had to carefully undo harnesses and redo things up. Um, in the correct order, and then separate himself from the seat, pull his emergency chute, uh, and make a safe descent. He just did it as he hit the ground. He broke both ankles very badly. Um, he could see the, the, the height going on his altimeter on one knee, stopwatch on the other. And I said to him, you know, Benny, that was, that was really cool to do that, to go through that and get it all done. And he said, well, you know, he said, I didn't have much else to do at the time. <laughs> now, a breed of men that have gone, I think. There he is again, handlebar moustache, in the cockpit of that aeroplane at the Science Museum. And there's uh, Joe Lancaster, who was the man to do the first emergency ejection. And in fact, Joe uh, saw the article, I think it was in Aeroplane. Um, they did a little interview of him. He's still going strong um, 60 years later. The uh, early standard seat, the Mark IV, uh, we see here, lightweight seat, by this time tidied up, um, improved in, in many, many ways. Um, and this seat, 
uh, was capable of ejecting at ground level at 90 knots. By now you've got uh, clockwork mechanisms that uh, deployed the drogue parachute, stabilized the seat, released the, the main parachute, separated the man from the seat, and did all these things automatically. Um, it enabled you to eject at ground level. Um, and here's one of those ejections. This is by John Fifield, another one of the uh, great, uh, great crowd. Uh, and John is ejecting there from the meteor on the ground to show that this seat had the capability of saving you as long as you were uh, in the act of taking off or, or just after landing. It really was a major step forward. And, and really, it, Martin Baker were then pretty much ad adopted across the world. The American Navy, who had done their first ejection with that very early Martin Baker seat in 1946, uh, were having a terrible time. They'd given our design to all the American aircraft companies um, who had made a uh, not that great a success of uh, developing it. Um, you know, they, they were building aeroplanes, so there was very um, big pressure uh, on them to concentrate on the aeroplanes. And ejection seats are pretty small beer. And so the, their ejection seats hadn't developed. They were losing lots of air crew, uh, especially on and around the carrier. This brought, uh, this ejection brought Martin Baker to their attention again. They asked us to do a demonstration in America, and that was done by Cedar Hughes at Patuxent River. And they then modified 11 different types of aircraft with the Martin Baker seat. And thankfully, one of them was the Phantom. This is one of the early Phantom seats. Uh, the first five Phantoms had somebody else's seat, American uh, seat made by Bob Stanley. But uh, you can imagine the disappointment he must have had when uh, the Navy said, no, we're going to change to Martin Baker across the board and fitted uh, the Martin Baker seat. Um, we made over 11,000 of those seats. So thank goodness. They, actually, when I was in the with the Navy, they said, uh, one of the admirals said to me, you know, he said, they should have made Ho Chi Minh a director of Martin Baker's. He generated so much business. <laughs> um, we then moved on to rocket ejection. The 90-knot ground level capability was, was good, but if you were descending close to the ground, uh, the chute didn't have time to open. We needed more power. Um, also, with things like V-bombers and that, clearing the fin at high speed was a problem. And we were giving the person as much acceleration as they could stand. And so this is the point when I joined the firm to work on the development of a rocket motor. And initially we had uh, two tubes uh, underneath the seat. Uh, well, they're shown underneath the seat here. Initially, just before I arrived, they just had two vertical rocket motors which were launched um, from behind the seat. And um, these were fired... And the idea was to tow the seat out. I mean, if you've ever tried pushing a chain, you know that it's much easier to pull it. And so using tractor rockets to pull it up seemed to be the way to go. Well, <clears throat> what happened was we bombarded Gerrard's Cross in Buckinghamshire because the rockets went straight to the top of the cables and just kept going and the seat didn't even move. Um, so it was... Back, the rockets went out there somewhere. They're somewhere out in the countryside to this day. We waited for the phone calls and the police, and uh, nothing ever happened, so we kept very quiet and changed the design. Um, the <clears throat> next approach, of course, was to push it, which is much harder. And we had a rocket tube here. Uh, it came through a manifold underneath, 
and then the flame came out the bottom of the seat um, and drove the seat upwards. We had a very brave guy volunteer to ride it, that's Doddy Hay sitting in the seat there, and he was the first man to do a zero speed, zero altitude ejection. Literally sit in the seat, pull the handle and eject. Now it seemed like a, a pretty good idea and it worked very well indeed as you can see from the photograph here. There he is, hands on the uh, seat firing handle, pulled the handle up, goes on the rocket, goes up to 300 feet or so, parachute opens at the top and he's got his survival kit released and he's down to make a safe landing on the ground. Worked very well indeed, but it was very difficult to install those rocket motors in um, most aircraft. It was obviously going to be a problem. And also you had two rocket motors. If one failed, and we had one fail on a test, then it was a catastrophe. And so we set about completely redesigning the rocket motor. Uh, we went to the ministry at Westcott and uh, uh, sought their uh, help. And all we got really was being told you couldn't do it. But the idea was to fit a rocket underneath the ejection seat, uh, shorten the seat, uh, sitting platform slightly, and recess this underneath. And this is the motor you're looking at. It's actually laying sort of face up here. Uh, these tubes contain the uh, rocket fuel, solid fuel. Um, that's the firing unit there. That, that sent a flame through this manifold, which lit the fuel up in these tubes. Uh, and the uh, tubes then produced... Uh, about four and a half thousand pounds of thrust which came out of these two nozzles on either side of the seat. The little rocket on the side here with a nozzle was there to tip the seat one way or the other. And there was a heck of a lot of work went into that. Uh, Rowlett Jones uh, was really leading the charge on it and uh, it was um, uh, a very, very difficult piece of design work. Things like the shape of the uh, fuel inside, the, the pattern that you used, that, that gives you different burning characteristics and so forth. We had a bunch of these blow up. And, and when I was doing the testing, it was honestly about where the end of that table is, upside down with the rocket plume going up. And I'd have uh, some electronic equipment in front of me. Uh, nothing else, no sandbags. We were about as dumb as they come. Um, and we'd do the countdown, and the chap would pull the cable. I would hit the electronics and record the thrust and, and time, uh, pressure and all the rest of it. And a number of times they blew up. Bits went everywhere. And uh, the car park at Martin Baker's where we did these tests, uh, we used to move the cars, of course. We weren't completely uh, um, ruthless. Uh, there, until they concre concreted that in, you could pick up little bits of solid rocket fuel in amongst the gravel uh, where these things had blown up years ago. But we got it working perfectly. Uh, and these were then sold as a retrofit to all of the aeroplanes out there. The Mark IV became the Mark VI, the Mark V became the Mark VII, and it was a really good piece of business for the company, and it dramatically improved the performance of the ejection seat. It also turned the ejection from a kick, you know, the people who've used both ways said that um, the old seat gave you a heck of a kick, the rocket seat gave you a sustained push and you just soared away from the aircraft. It really was a major step forward. <clears throat> One of the early programs I worked on was this wonderful aircraft, TSR-2, which was uh, murdered by the uh, ministry. A great shame, super aeroplane. 
And that had an, a very, very good ejection seat, the Mark 8. Um, and it really was the end of an era. It, I think it had just about everything. By now, the parachute was at the top, which is where it really needs to be. Um, it had um, a ratcheting device so you could tighten the harness up. It had head restraint, arm restraint, leg restraint. This was 800 knots you were going to be ejecting at ground level with this. Um, very, very advanced piece of kit. But when the TSR2 uh, died, this escape system died with it. And it was really the end of a generation because up to this point, the seats had been operated by clockwork mechanisms. Um, and uh, from now on, we were looking at using uh, gas-powered uh, devices on the seat to make them work quicker and uh, more efficiently. One of the things that really got on Sir James's nerves, if, if you really wanted to get him going, ask him about the V-bombers and the ejection seats for the guys in the back. Um, it was an absolute scandal that the V-bombers were designed only with ejection seats for the pilots. The three men in the back who were rearward facing had to go out of the door. You see the door on the side of the aircraft here. On the, uh, this is a Valiant. Um, that meant that the pilots had to very often stay with the aircraft to try and give the guys in the back time to get out. And a number of them died um, staying too long. Uh, it, was, it was terrible. Um, in the very early days, the company came up with schemes for ejecting the men in the back. And um, we even uh, borrowed a, a Valiant aircraft that was organised by the chief of the air staff, Sir Dermot Boyle, um, to loan it to the company, uh, to some extent against uh, ministry uh, wishes, because they didn't want it demonstrated. And we modified the aeroplane, put ejection seat in the back, and ejected it. This is a dummy uh, going out in, out in the seat here at Chalgrove. Um, but shortly after this, 1960, um, Doddy Hay, who we saw in zero zero shot, did it for real at a thousand feet um, and 250 knots to prove that you could eject facing backwards. I mean, the, the American B-52 had six crew members. The two in the bottom face forward and go down. The two in the back face rearward and go up. And the two in the front face forward and go up. And they did it. I mean, it was not easy, but we just, you know... It, he, he just couldn't understand why the ministry wouldn't upgrade the aircraft. The final uh, version of that was shown here. This was for the Vulcan. There's the three crew members you're looking from the back of the aircraft. And when the pilot initiated escape, he set a sequence uh, going where the hatch uh, was opened in the top here. You can see the, uh, through the pressure hole. Um, the tray table was folded. The harnesses were retracted by a ballistic device on the shoulders. And then the middle man would eject. The side man would swing over, eject through the same hole. This guy would swing over, eject through the hole. And then the pilots would go. Everybody out in about one and a half seconds. Uh, we did a, a similar system with four seats for the Grumman Prowler. And everybody out in 1.2 seconds in that aeroplane. It was entirely doable, but it was never done. And it was a great shame. The Mark 9 seat was developed for the uh, the Harrier. Um, and we then went on to work on the Mark 10, which was really to become the company's uh, sort of uh, main ejection seat. This is a very early version of it. And one of the problems we had was that the uh, parachute, which is up here, 
had to be detachable from the seat because the Germans um, still required over-the-side bailout. This was a seat for the MRCA, which later became Tornado. Uh, everybody then knew that MRCA meant Mother Riley's cardboard aeroplane. But um, it, it did go on to become a very good aeroplane. And I had uh, the job of being dispatched by Sir James to Germany uh, for a meeting to try and convince them that over-the-side bailout was no longer a realistic thing from uh, an aeroplane like the uh, Tornado. You either went down the intake or you hit the fin. It really was a non-starter. Um, I was confronted by three very senior generals, including Steinhoff, who had been terribly burnt, bailing out of a Mischersmith, and you could not convince Steinhoff that you couldn't bail out of a Tornado if you really had to. Um, the seat had all sorts of backup systems and so forth, and it was going to be much better um, if we had a fixed parachute. That meeting uh, eventually broke up with a lot of bad feeling. They reluctantly agreed to go with it, but Steinhoff said, I don't want to see the German Air Force use Martin Baker again. Uh, they did, but um, it, it caused a lot of bad feeling. But the seat that resulted is that one with a fixed parachute at the top, um, up in the top here, and it was a very, very good uh, ejection seat, and it saved a lot of air crew lives. And that really became the standard for the next 20-odd years. This was 1974 that we produced uh, that seat. I was the uh, program manager on that project. One of the, the big things that helped us was changing to the GQ uh, aeroconical parachute. A very, very different way of operating. A nice aeroplane. Uh, not a nice parachute that used um, aerodynamics over its surface rather than uh, just drag. And it didn't, it was uh, later steerable and it didn't swing, which was an important thing. So that was really quite a, an important step for us. Uh, a lot of other companies also produced integrated equipment to go with the seat. Uh, that's um, the seat for the, uh, I think, the Hawk. Um, and uh, later, John Martin did a lot of work and produced what was called the Tenor L. Um, he cut out a lot of man hours, simplified the manufacture, and produced that seat, um, which has uh, been installed in 47 uh, air forces and 43 aircraft types. It's pretty much the standard. And there's one of them ejecting uh, through the canopy from the uh, AMX, an all-round good piece of kit. Now, you see, old ejection seat man, I'm rambling on about ejection seats when I said I'd talk about other things. Um, we'll touch on a couple of things on ejection seats before we get on to some of the other things. This was a, a, really an interesting program. Again, I managed this program. This was the articulated seat. Um, in the um, early 80s, a lot of concern about high G. The new aeroplanes coming along, well, that were already along. F-16, 1976. Um, were pulling high G more than the man could tolerate. And the next generation, the advanced tactical fighter uh, and uh, aeroplanes being looked at by European countries were going to be pulling even more G. Uh, and we had to find some way of reclining the pilot uh, to enable him to tolerate more G. And here we've got the uh, seat installed at 34 degrees. Uh, lightning was 28 degrees, by the way. That was That was back quite a long way. That was in the uh, early 50s that was installed um, but uh, this was 34 degrees which with the angle of attack of the aeroplane as it's pulling around the corner gives you 
uh, a, a you know, reasonable bit of protection. But we also came up with an articulated sitting platform that enabled us to do that. It raised the sitting platform, inclined the back of the seat, and the effect was that where the man was laid down in the cockpit, but his eye stayed in the same position. High G seat. And um, the seat could eject in this position. He didn't have to uh, motor it back. Uh, the idea was you would take off. Um, once you'd uh, climbed up, you would recline yourself like this. You had a side stick, side throttle, and you could go and fly the aeroplane in a, in a, a very laid-back uh, position. Um, we did a lot of work with the people at Farnborough, IEM. They did a tremendous amount of work uh, with us uh, in the centrifuge and provided a super input. And we then took this um, several stages further. And I couldn't find any pictures of it. But we uh, were working on some very, very uh, advanced kit. We were integrating the ejection seat with the cockpit. Um, things like the aircraft stick came onto the ejection seat. Um, one of the problems you've got is if you start laying the man down, you're making the instrument panel smaller. And so we had um, the uh, instrument panel went onto the pilot's legs. Uh, the feet were raised even more. And these uh, instrument panels were like flip-over panels so that they were open when you got in. You got into the aircraft, put your feet on the rudder pedals and so forth, and then these things came over your legs. And you had all the keys well inside your, your reach. Uh, and they were touch panels. Uh, we had... Um, uh, one, a couple of the companies we were working with, they were working on uh, voice. I mean, this is a long time ago. And they even one of the American companies got me to uh, sit in the cockpit and give voice commands to their flight controls, just as if it would understand a limey as well as uh, the Americans. And it did. So there was a lot of work done on this, uh, but gradually the aircraft manufacturers and the powers that be went away from it. Uh, the IEM did a lot of good work on uh, G-suits and uh, other equipment. And all of the aeroplanes, really, that have come along, other than the Rafale, the French Rafale did use a reclined seat, but fixed at 34 degrees. But um, they, uh, all of the others went to upright seats uh, for various operational reasons. One of the main ones was the need to look behind you. Well... You know, with the helmets that were being developed even then, you could look at screens and, and head-up displays and see what was behind you. But uh, the old fighter pilots wanted to actually be able to check six. And so that, that whole technology uh, died out. Helicopters. Um, Martin Baker's always believed that when an aeroplane crashes, the safest place to be is somewhere else. And so we we came up with Ejection seats. Our first approach for helicopter safety was ejection seats. Uh, but there's this problem uh, up the top here. Um, as somebody said, you know, the ejection's easy. It's a surgery that's difficult. Um, and we looked at various ways. We, we had uh, rigs at the company. Uh, we had the seat coming out sideways and going up. We had the seat rotating over on its side, ejecting and then going up. Uh, we had... Um, upward ejection with cutting devices on the rotor head. Um, and this actually um, 
was adopted by NASA. Um, I did some work with Sikorsky and we installed uh, cutting units on the head, two Mark 10L seats in the cockpit of a research helicopter they were doing uh, for NASA. And when the pilot initiated ejection, um, the first thing that happened was that it operated the units in the rotor head and these fired charges in all of the rotor blades, severed the blades and the ejection seats then ejected uh, in sequence and everybody was out in about 0.3 of a second. Um, if the system didn't work, none of the rotor blades would go. It was a fail-safe system and you went back to square one and tried to deal with the problem. Um, but it was very reliable. We uh, equipped two helicopters, but we found no interest anywhere else in the military. And so we decided we better find a different way of doing things and went for the crash-worthy seat, stay with the aircraft and absorb the impact. And this is a, a fairly advanced, well, a complex version. And what you've got here is a, a, a pilot seat. This one happens to be surrounded by uh, armour. And you've got the harness in here. Uh, it's mounted on floor rails, so you can slide it backwards and forwards. You can raise the sitting platform up and down. And you can swing these panels uh, round you for uh, additional protection. Normally it's a chair. You sit in it, it's a fixed height other than being able to adjust it uh, up and down through a fixed range. But in the event of a crash, the helicopter strikes the ground very hard. Um, uh, a device operates on the seat, cheer pins break. The seat slides down on the structure with a man in the seat. And as it goes down, it cuts metal absorbs energy and or um, attenuates energy and um, reduces the load being transmitted to the person in the seat uh, such that for example if the uh, aircraft is generating 50 g which is not survivable the person in the seat sees about 18 g which is survivable and uh, uh, these have been used in emergencies and they've uh, worked pretty well this is one actually, I think, from the Ruri Valk, which is a South African uh, helicopter. And as I say, we've made a number of them with various uh, armour uh, plates around them, composite armours. These are seats that we've done for the Black Hawk. These are medical um, operate or yeah, sick birth attendant type people. They're the stretchers that they're looking after. And these seats rotate uh, and go up and down. And in the event of a crash, they attenuate the uh, the impact. <clears throat> the simplest of the, the breed of these, these are troop seats. Um, this is the aircraft structure around it. And this is mounted on the wall. That's a window behind it. Um, and it's a very simple seat, as you can see. But it means that all of the people in the back of the helicopter are protected in the event of a crash. Um, and uh, the, the uh, marine or soldier straps in there if he should be involved in a crash the whole thing slides down on the tubes absorbs impact and he's got a chance of then getting up and walking away after the accident um, if you want to put other loads inside the aircraft the thing can be folded up this gives room and you can even pull on the uh, yellow tie at the top uh, and use a strap across the bottom and lift the whole thing out so these uh, 60 odd of these in the back of a a uh, big Sikorsky Sea Stallion, and the company is producing these uh, in, in very large companies. So a whole range of seats 
that uh, are being used that we hadn't appreciated um, there would ever be a market for. Um, there was some resistance at the company to doing this. We make ejection seats, we don't make these things, these sort of deck chairs, but in fact it's been very, very good business. It was interesting, in fact, because I had the sort of job of um, selling the concept to the various air forces, that they all accepted the fact that if you can know how to accelerate somebody safely, then you can decelerate somebody safely. And really, I didn't have any pushback from the military, and um, it, it went ahead quite successfully. We've uh, even produced some very nice ones for executive-type helicopters, but another program that I, I dealt with was the tragic accident at Kegworth, where the um, uh, an airliner crashed onto the M1, coming into land at uh, Midlands Airport, uh, broke into a number of pieces, and uh, I was asked to, to uh, participate in the investigation of that accident. And uh, one of the things that had happened was a lot of the seats had broken away from the floor and, and being thrown forward. And you could see that the seats that had torn away, there were fatalities, and the ones that had remained attached were, by and large, people had survived, some with injuries, but they'd survived. Um, the floor of the aeroplane, oh, sorry, the aeroplane was equipped with the new 16G uh, crashworthy seat, um, an American seat, but nobody had noticed that it still had the old 9G floor. So you had a super seat that just tore away from the floor and it, it completely negated it. <clears throat> we came up with a recommendation to use the attenuation system to not only limit the load going into the person, but to limit the load going into the floor. Boeing said, we can't change the floor. All the Boeing 737s are out there, uh, 747, all of these 9G floors. We can't change them. It's too big, too major to change. So this was a way of fixing the problem coming up with an attenuation system that would enable the seat to A, reduce the forces on the person, but more important, keep the seat attached to the floor. Um, and um, we uh, proved the concepts, we set up a production line, and then nothing. All the airlines were keen to go. They said, yeah, we'll do it. But you have to, it has to be mandated. CAA, the FAA have to come out and say, Thou will fit these seats because not one airline is going to fit them on their own. They're not going to have the expense. Um, the extra weight wasn't that bad. Something like three or four pounds uh, per person. Um, extra weight for having all this uh, crashworthiness. Uh, but um, uh, the uh, authorities wouldn't mandate it and they just sat on their hands and nothing was done. So the situation um, pretty much remains as it uh, was at that time. Anyway, this is the seat. We, we took a bit of a bath on the uh, production line. We wasted a lot of time and energy uh, and uh, it never went uh, anywhere. And this is a non-crashworthy seat. This is a crew seat, something else that we've got into. And this is uh, an operator's seat or other crew member seat for maritime aircraft, like the uh, Nimrod, um, where you've got these seats uh, and it provides a, a really good sitting platform with all the tilt, rotate, and all the other stuff. Um, and we're producing these for uh, different maritime aircraft um, and primarily for the military. Another line of business you didn't know we were in. 
Back to ejection seats again, NACES. This was the Na US Navy Aircrew Common Ejection Seat. Um, this was the first ejection seat in the world to have an electronic processor or oh, microprocessor installed underneath the headrest here, an onboard computer. And this really did step up the capability of the ejection seat. Now, uh, through pitots on the side of the seat that deployed on ejection, we could read the speed that would then and the altitude that would determine the speed at which the seat would operate, um, how quickly the parachute would be deployed, drogue would be deployed and so forth, and give the pilot really the very best chance of survival. It looks similar to the Mark 10 deliberately. Um, you know, pilots are an extremely conservative bunch. It's their backside that's on the ejection seat. And when you can't try and come out with new things, you, you can see all the, oh yeah, you know, uh, we're going to fit a computer on the seat. Oh yeah, you know, uh, we're going to have explosive devices. Why can't we have cables? We've had cables for years. They work for, you know, it, it, it really gets your attention. I, when I was uh, with the Navy, I, I got uh, quite a lot of flying in with uh, the, the sharp end of the fleet in phantoms and stuff like that. And you're sitting on a seat. One time we, we, the, the pilot said to me, I think you're going to have to make use of your equipment. And that really does get your attention. And, and after that, you, you're never very flippant about these things. And you understand why aircrew want to be absolutely sure. This is their last chance. And all of them have said to me, or not all of them, but many have said to me, as I reached for that handle, I knew that if this damn thing didn't work, I was going to be dead in the next two seconds. I pulled the handle, next thing I'm on the parachute, and Martin Baker is sending me a necktie. So it really uh, is a, a very, very close relationship between uh, the company, the product, and the operator. So we didn't make any dramatic changes to the seat appearance, but we did greatly improve its performance. There's a picture of it ejecting zero, zero, standing still on the ground. You can see the rocket flames out of the bottom. Um, getting the uh, drogue out very, very quickly. That's it being streamed at the top. This is a high-speed ejection on the sled track with the uh, drogue already stabilizing the seat. Uh, and that now is in service in all the US uh, Navy aircraft. They would love to have it in the JSF, uh, but they're going to have a, a new seat for that aeroplane. While all this was going on, uh, we got involved with um, uh, NASA and the uh, European Space Agency uh, for a lander system for a probe that was going to Titan, one of the moons of Saturn. Um, I think one of the reasons we were asked to do this was because there was a confidence that our equipment would work properly the first time because that's what it has to do. It, it has to sit there perhaps for 30 years and be serviced and abused and so forth and then suddenly it's needed and it has to work like that and work perfectly. This piece of kit was going to be flying off to Saturn. It was going to take years in deep space to get there going all around the uh, solar system. And when it got there, uh, it was on the back of Cassini. The, uh, that would then go into uh, orbit round Saturn. You can sort of see a murky view of Saturn in the background there. Uh, there we go. I'm glad, I'm glad our seats work better than this pointer. Um, the, um, 
then the little Huygens probe would be separated from Cassini, uh, powered away, put into orbit round Titan, and then at a predetermined time, uh, the probe would uh, re-enter or enter the atmosphere of Titan, and you'd have a, a heat shield initially, you'd have a reefed uh, parachute system, and it would come down, um, the shield would release. There are actually different chutes being deployed as it's coming through the atmosphere, and it then goes into a uh, steady descent. And it was actually this descent which was the important bit, uh, because it, it mustn't swing, it had to rotate at a certain rate, um, and it was all really quite clever stuff. Um, Dr. Steve Lingard um, was uh, with the company then, and he was uh, responsible for the work. He's a very good parachute designer. And um, to come up with a parachute with, that would do all of these things in an atmosphere uh, 1.4 billion kilometers from here, uh, I think was pretty clever. And he did it perfectly. system did exactly what it said on the tin, came all the way down. The soft landing was an option. Uh, the whole important bit was the... Uh, minutes while it was descending through the atmosphere when it was sampling it, sending the data back to uh, base. But in fact, it made a good landing and continues to send information back from this very, very hostile world all those uh, way away. Um, I'd like to say that we're going to get more programs like this. Who knows? Um, I, I did some work with uh, NASA uh, following the loss of Challenger. We looked at putting ejection seats in the uh, space shuttle. Um, before that, we'd done work on uh, Hermes, which was a three-seat European space plane. Um, and uh, we'd come up with an encapsulated seat. Uh, we needed to be able to eject to an altitude of uh, 60 kilometers, uh, which is when you had the burnout of the solid bucket, uh, rocket boosters. Uh, those big, great big boosters, that, that they all have them. I mean, the shuttle's got these great big boosters. Um, they light up the uh, motors on the shuttle and it sits there, it's sort of held down and then they light the boosters and you are going because once those things are lit, you can't turn them off. Um, and so they have to provide protection for the crew during that phase of liftoff. And this is what the Europeans were doing uh, with uh, Hermes, with the three crew members. And uh, we did a whole load of studies. I did a lot of presentations. That's when Steve Lingard came on board. Um, and uh, we did a lot of work with uh, ESA, um, but uh, the program was cancelled. Then the Challenger disaster occurred, and um, I, d I don't know if you all realise, but those crew members were alive uh, all the way through that, right down to impact. It blew up on in the air. Uh, the cabin separated. They had no way out, and uh, it took uh, several, two minutes, I think, to descend uh, and hit the sea, at which point they were killed. Um, we looked at working with this with NASA, um, but they're in a dilemma. The shuttle is really a very, very sophisticated truck that's taking expensive, expensive payloads into space for discerning customers. Um, and if you say, we fixed it, it's, it's all perfectly okay now, and they look in the cabin and you put it in ejection seats, it's sort of saying we're not that confident that we fixed it. And that was one of the reasons, and, and the astronauts agreed with it, that they didn't fit ejection seats. And uh, I particularly ground my teeth when um, the Columbia broke up during re-entry, 
they got complete bodies down from that. And I think had we had encapsulated seats in it, there was a chance that some of them might have survived. So, down from my soapbox. Um, this is um, just really an example. This is one of the latest programs we've got. This is T38 um, uh, fuselage, test fuselage, uh, on our track at Langford Lodge. And this was a hard program to get, to persuade the Americans that they needed to improve the uh, ejection seats in the T38, which is pretty long in the tooth. It's been around since the late 50s. Um, very, very good training aeroplane. They've got uh, 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 several hundred, of, I think 500 aircraft still in service, and they were upgrading the aeroplane for the future. And we eventually managed to persuade them that they needed to upgrade the uh, aeroplane. Um, I did this work while I was in Washington, and a heck of a lot of lobbying and arm twisting, and we went ahead and um, uh, persuaded them and now the Air Force is upgrading it with uh, two Martin Baker seats. And so that's a 1,000 seats that we're going to be producing, or in the throes of producing, uh, to be installed uh, in all of the U.S. Air Force T-38s. Uh, it's also being installed in some of the F-5s, which have got the same cockpits. And other Air Forces already jumped in, and they're having them as well, uh, in their F-5s and t 38 So suddenly, here's an old aeroplane that's uh, being given uh, a completely new escape system um, and that's really come from um, a lot of persistence and also the need to accommodate a much wider range of aircrew sizes. Um, I'm already over time, but I'm going to be just a tiny bit more over time because I think this track, again, another bit of Martin Baker kit, uh, is worth looking at. This uh, track is uh, standard British rail rail. Uh, it's built on a one meter deep concrete bed, which is effectively a, a beam 6,200 feet long from one airfield uh, end of the airfield to the other. This track is then pre-tensioned and bolted, or sorry, um, welded to this uh, steel sleepers, which are bolted right through uh, the concrete track. So you've got this great big single beam with this rail running along it. We then designed a special laser rig uh, which to grind this track uh, flat and straight. And it's uh, flat to within 10,000 in any 125 feet. And it's um, only a tenth of an inch out over its entire length. So it's pretty straight and it's pretty flat. Reason for that is if you're traveling at high speed and if the thing is going up and down, uh, you can get some uh, very bad forces being generated. Uh, you've got high-speed cameras in the pods here, high-speed cameras on board, uh, all sorts of uh, test measuring equipment. You've got perhaps as many as 28 cameras along the side of the track filming what's happening. You've got a bank of rockets at the back here to accelerate the uh, vehicle. Uh, and you can fit any sort of cockpit. We've got JSF. Um, we've had we've had them all. There's a quite a, a boneyard of... of uh, aeroplane uh, fuselages uh, at our test facilities. If it's a high-speed test, that rocket can accelerate that vehicle up to 750 miles an hour in 1.7 seconds. Um, it reaches the, the, the test speed. It then, uh, the main boosters cut out. We then have another set of boosters light up. It cruises for one second at that speed, neither accelerating nor decelerating. 
And during that one second, the seats are rejected, everything happens, it's all recorded, and then the whole rig is brought to a standstill in about five seconds in a water break. It's spectacular. Um, you know, it's a sort of uh, schoolboy's dream to play with this rig. I took an Israeli to see the shot, and a general, and he turned, just turned around for a moment, and it all happened, and he missed the whole blooming thing. <laughs> you can see the film afterwards, sir. You know, we can. The latest seat we're working on, it, uh, well, in fact, it's just about finished uh, working on, is the uh, Mark 16 seat for the Joint Strike Fighter. Now, that really is a, a different-looking piece of kit. Um, the man who's handling that program extremely well is here tonight, Steve Roberts. He's in the audience, um, and he's doing a great job, and I can see myself in Steve only uh, 25 years uh, later. It, it's an exciting job, it's an exciting piece of work and you're right at the cutting edge there's the front view of it um, and at last you know, back in the back in the 60s I think it was Sir James put forward the idea of automatic ejection and you know it's absolutely poo-pooed I gave a paper here in 1982 on automatic ejection um, and, and, and we we're trying to get the idea you know that very, these aeroplanes now are so sophisticated, they know where you are relative to, to the ground. Um, uh, very, they, they know the height remaining they, uh, for pulling out. They know that you haven't got enough height left. For goodness sake, at least warn the crew that they're coming close to the, that they've A, lost the aeroplane, and B, that they're coming close to the limits of the escape system ability to save them. And then, logically, you wouldn't just leave them in the cockpit with the lights flashing saying eject too low. You'd have a system that would get them out while they could still survive. And boy, they had me tied to the post and the brushwood round the ankles in no time. Heresy uh, being cried out all over the place. At last it's going to happen on JSF, on the vertical takeoff aircraft, and that will have uh, automatic ejection when the aircraft is in the hover mode, when it's coming in low speeds. Because if things go wrong they go wrong extremely quickly under those conditions, as they did in the Harrier and a lot of others that we would like to have had automatic ejection for. So this is a good piece of kit, and there it is, actually being tested from the JSF forward fuselage uh, and uh, demonstrating uh, the latest technology. So I hope you'll agree that Martin Baker have um, done a few other things. There's, I hope somebody's going to ask me some questions so I can tell you about some of the others. But um, It's been a fascinating company to work for. Um, you, you never really retire. You, you're still thinking about it. You're still involved. I was at the company several times preparing this lecture and sit down with Jim and John Martin talking about what's going on, what's coming along. Um, it's, it's fascinating stuff. But the, I think one of the really important bits is that you're saving lives. It's over 7,200 lives now that the company's saved. And everybody in the firm is aware that that's really what it's all about. Um, all these studies and all the rest of it, at the end of the day, it's saving aircrew lives. And I'm also proud to say it's an all-British company and it's selling the seats to 90 different air forces around the world. So I like to think there's one of us that's doing pretty well in the um, while the banks are ruining everything elsewhere. 
So thank you very, very much indeed. And I hope somebody will have a few questions. Thank you. Grant, thank you very much for telling us such a wonderful story about the company. Thank you. And showing us just the quality of British engineering. It was great. Thank you. Now, I'm sure there'll be questions. Yes, it's Rod Kirkby. And uh, I know that the F-104 initially had a downward ejection seat. Um, when the Germans had them, did they actually fit... Did they have the downward ejection seat at that time, or did they fit their own lash up, or did Martin Baker step in with ejection Glad seats for the F-104? Yeah, they um, initially the aeroplane did have a downward ejection seat. It was a Lockheed seat. Mm. Um, this was the problem, you see. You had the aircraft manufacturers doing their own seats. And I was talking to one of my counterparts, and he was at Douglas. And when they had the meetings... Um, you'd have uh, all of the aircraft program managers right up there next to the, the, the top brass and poor old ejection seat bloke sitting right up the end and nobody talked to him, you know. So he, he was very difficult at support and budgets. Anyway, yeah, lucky he'd had downward ejection seat. That was put on them really by the Air Force. Uh, there was a lot of concern about the risk of injuring people going upward. And you also had a T-tail on the 104 and it was a pretty fast aeroplane. Um, but of course... A large number of ejections take place during takeoff and landing, and downward ejection is just a really fast burial service. <laughs> um, so, not to be recommended. Um, they were losing a lot of aircrew, um, very large number. They were being trained in America and then in clear skies and all the rest of it, then coming back to Europe, flying in foul weather in a very hot aeroplane, and they lost a lot of aeroplanes and a lot of pilots. And in the end, there was a, a great uh, cry for a Martin Baker seats because they had them in all their other aircraft where the crews were surviving very uh, well and they wanted a Martin Baker seat. And we did. We re-equipped all of the German starfighters with a GQ-7A uh, seat and the Danish, the Norwegians, the Greeks, they all jumped on board, everybody with starfighters, and uh, fitted Martin Baker seats. I think the only people who didn't were the Japanese and the Thai Taiwanese, but everybody else had our seat, and it worked very well indeed. And it was like night and day. You know, you they would got like something like a sixty percent success rate with the American seat, and they fitted the Martin Baker seat, and it was about 90 percent success rate. Okay. Any more for any more? Uh, John Brown, yeah. um, you talked to uh, the. The, some of the projects in the early stages of the company, none of which seem to go into production. And uh, so the question is, how did the company actually earn its money in, in those days, and how was all this research financed? Um, I don't think they spent very much money. It was a small company. Um, the research was being done by the, the people themselves with absolutely basic facilities. But they were doing other things. I I, I, I didn't mention it, but when they were building the MB1, um, uh, Baker became friends with Raoul Hafner, who was building an auto, designed an autogyro, and he needed to have that made. And so uh, he got Martin Baker to produce the uh, uh, Hafner autogyro, um, which was tested at uh, Heston and uh, was actually moderately successful. 
Um, and this was all while it was, this was going on. He was also producing other devices, which I haven't touched upon, but it was difficult. And, and Francis was pouring a lot of money into this and seeing not, not a lot of return for it. Um, to be fair, he didn't come to the company very often, which was probably just as well. Um, and um, also Baker uh, didn't uh, come to the firm that much. They'd have meetings occasionally, at sort of main times when uh, Martin needed some inputs or uh, prior to test flights. But Martin was very much on his own and he was getting this money coming in. But he had a tiny company. He could do everything. He really could. Um, I'd been with him walking through the factory and he'd skid to a halt, go over to some chap who's filing a piece of metal. He said, what are you doing? And take his jacket off and show him how to do it. And he really could do it. Um, and everybody knew that. But that was that was the nature of the firm. There was only 35 people, I think, in the company building the MB2. But they, everybody, they were all very skilled. And uh, it, it was amazing. But they didn't use very much money. Um, it was very much hand-to-mouth stuff. Not until later, of course. Then they started, they, the ministry bought the MB2, the, the fighter with a fixed undercarriage, uh, but not until it was made, and they sent it to Martel Trimhe for testing. Um, and it, they didn't pay him enough. I, I think they paid £8,000, and he'd spent something like £19,000 developing it. Um, but the uh, MB3 and the MB5, these were funded by the ministry. Yes? Uh, Michael, it be, um, Brian, it would be me asking this, but you <laughs> to some secret work that the company is going to. What more can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, okay. Well, part of it was the, the uh, reclined stuff in cockpits. Uh, another one, uh, one of the first jobs I had at Martin Baker, uh, as was said earlier, I, I started, I saw this advert for um, a technician to assist in the development of a rocket ejection seat. That, that pretty sexy stuff. I was studying um, uh, pathology at the time, um, so it was a bit of a career jump. But I went and joined the company and uh, never regretted it. But um, during my work on the uh, rocket motor, which was a very lowly position, but it was right at the cutting edge, um, Dassault were testing the Mirage 4 bomber. And when they dropped the weapon, um, it didn't. It flew along underneath which was kind of embarrassing. You know, you're sort of being followed by a nuclear weapon. So um, they they needed some way of getting rid of the device and they turned to Martin Baker and um, uh, Alan Rowlett-Jones um, was given the job of designing what became the Dassault Thruster. And this was like an ejection gun that was mounted above the bomb in the aircraft bomb bay, acting on the main spar of the, the aircraft. And I had the job of testing it, so he and I... Uh, did it together, and uh, uh, I'm sure it isn't the case, but I bet there's a few cracks in houses around Denham where this great shape was thudded into the ground by this uh, ballistic device. Um, that's never been, as far as I know, ever talked about, um, and I couldn't find anything about it in the uh, publications. Uh, some of the installations uh, we looked at in later years were extremely integrated into the aircraft. I mean, you wouldn't have been able to tell where the aircraft ended and the ejection seat started. Um, some of the ejection seat structure was aircraft structure. Um, and just about all of the 
cockpit equipment had moved onto the seat. Um, the uh, pilot would keep his hands on the stick, which was uh, in the, um, you know, between the, obviously, he moved back to between the pilot's legs. Uh, it was a Y-shaped stick. He had throttle on one side. This is because you're going to be pulling lots of G, turning and burning, and it was difficult to move your limbs about under high G conditions that were being envisaged at that time. And so the pilot was laid back, his head was supported, um, and uh, all his limbs, his arms had counterbalanced uh, uh, armrests to take the, uh, the weight. And he was using this um, uh, split uh, stick um, with the throttle built into it and HOTAS and all the rest of it. Um, and when he needed to eject, he closed this thing, which uh, armed the seat, and then pulled it, I think turned and pulled or pulled and turned and initiated the ejection sequence. Um, it was it was pretty racy stuff. There was some very, very good flight equipment being developed at the same time to go with it, all the flying clothing, all integrated into the aeroplane. And it really was, you know, sort of Dandair and the Mekon. No, it was really, really good stuff. Um, but um, it, it's always been interesting. You know, I, I had this... My title was Head of Marketing, but... Um, that was, that was part of it, but really I was working with all of the companies on what was coming down the stream. Um, I would then be responsible for the technical proposals and developing the uh, concepts of what was going to go forward, and we'd take that up to contract award, and at that stage I'd hand over to a, a dedicated team who'd gradually been working more and more with my little team, and um, they would then take it forward and make it happen. But I saw many times where you start off with all these super bells and whistles and you go, at last, you know, we're going to have all of these things. And one by one, they all get taken away. You know, the ministry go, oh, no, 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 we can't have that, you know. And the old black pen comes out and you end up back with the old ejection seat all over again. But as long as it's Martin Baker, I wasn't too worried. But it was a great shame. But also a lot of the aircraft projects just came to an end. They didn't happen. They, they, or they morphed into something more uh, conventional. But the, especially the Americans had some fantastic aircraft out there. And I met some interesting people. But, uh, yes. Any more? Oh, can I, sorry, can I just say, one, when I was out there as a rep in the 60s, there was a, suddenly a great, ah, you know, um, security leak. Um, they suddenly, somebody realised that I think there were 48 people in the Phantom Works, the McDonald version of the Skunk Works, it top secret, and 38 of them were Brits. <laughs> and it was, ah, you know, so there was a, a lot of uh, fascinating. Yes. Sorry, they were ejected. They were ejected underwater. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Sorry. Yeah, and thank you very much. That was actually another line of business we had. Uh, with the Mark IV and the Mark V seat, well, Mark IV, really, um, as I said, you had to eject on the ground. In, in an aircraft carrier environment, um, if you ejected on the deck, um, with the wind over the deck plus the aircraft going forward, you could probably make it. But once you left the deck and any sort of sink rate developed, uh, you were really a bit stuck. Uh, you, you weren't going to make it with the old ballistic seat. And uh, several cases occur where the aeroplane went into the water uh, with the pilot still in it and then uh, sank 
and uh, he couldn't get the canopy open, all the rest of it, and in sheer desperation, the the man ejected underwater. And uh, the seat worked. I mean, it it worked very well indeed. And he'd come up in a great flurry of uh, bubbles. Um, The last one we had was an Indian, went out of a Seahawk, and uh, he wrote this super letter and said, the only injury I had was scratching my bottom on the barnacles under the carrier. <laughs> so yes, there were a number, but uh, the Royal Navy took it a stage further and uh, we actually developed a system for them where the seat would eject automatically underwater. And that was installed in the Buccaneer and the Sea Vixen and I think the Scimitar. And if you went in the water and the aeroplane sank, if you got down to eight feet, a hydrostatic uh, head, um, which was exposed to the sea pressure, would be operated, and that would um, eject the seat from the aircraft using compressed gas. So the man would have a much gentler ejection from the aircraft. Um, and it also released, it stopped the various mechanisms working, but also released his harness and everything. It was pretty, pretty cool. Uh, we did the development of that work at um, down at um, oh, uh, Devonport uh, in the big uh, submarine escape tower, 100 feet tower, full of water, and sank rigs into it with cockpits and the guys were ejected. And they even had it where the chap would come up in the dinghy. Um, so, you know, yeah. Um, but uh, the advent of the rocket seat made that unnecessary because now you could eject anywhere going down into the water. You could eject standing still in the water. And quite frankly, if you waited until you were 30 feet down, you waited a bit long. But, um, yeah. Uh, my name is Jack Wells. I want to ask if you would elaborate a bit on the ability of the human body to withstand the, the power of some of the matter. It's frightening to me. That you, you used dummies, I assume, in, in the initial test. Yes. Yes. Okay, yes, thank you. Um, yes, the, um, the, the human body is actually a pretty tolerant piece of kit as long as it's properly prepared. You know, if you're sitting in the right position, uh, the spine's aligned and so forth, uh, you can tolerate uh, fairly high levels of G. Um, it's when you're misaligned that you've got the problem. And quite early on, with uh, the first one was, I think, TSR2, the Mark 8 seat, we had harness retraction that would pull the, the man back in the seat before he ejected. And this was subsequently installed in, in a large number of aeroplanes. Uh, as a rep, I found that the Americans were flying with a pencil jammed in their go-forward lever so that their harness was permanently unlocked. And they were able to twist and turn because they were in, uh, fighting for their lives in combat in Vietnam. And so we came up with... A, I wrote back to the company to uh, Sir James. I used to get a letter almost a day from him um, and uh, went back to him and said, you know, uh, what, the, what I'd found and uh, don't, don't think they're doing it wrong. They're doing it because they need to be able to uh, lean and turn in the seat. And so he came up with an inertia locking reel. So if you pulled a lot of G, the reel would lock and then you could unlock it manually and, and restore the movement. And then he came up with a retracting shoulder harness. And um, it really did make quite a difference. Um, when we added the rocket, that made an enormous difference. The, the, the ejection gun in aeroplanes like the uh, V-bombers, they were hot. They, they were really 80, no, not 80, yeah, 80 feet per second gun. 
instead of 60 feet per second, which was normal at that time. And you only had six feet in which to accelerate the man. And you had to eject the heavy person with all his gear over the fin. And you look at a victor, the tail, at 600 knots. Um, you had to give him a hard ride. So the risk of back injury was about 40%. That didn't mean the chap was paraplegic. It meant that he had a crushed vertebra and after six weeks or so he'd be cleared for flight again and would be okay. It was a price that was paid. But when we added the rocket, we reduced the power of the ejection gun dramatically. And that's because now we had 120 feet to accelerate the man instead of six. And so we were able to give him this push rather than this short, sharp kick. And that really did make a heck of a difference. So, um, um, yes, it, we use dummies, they're instrumented. And in fact, this is one of the... I was lucky because the instrumentation when I was uh, doing all this work, um, it was pretty sensitive, we thought, at the time. And we had 3,000 frames per second photography and stuff like this. Um, but the instrumentation now is so sophisticated. The dummies are so representative. You can scare yourself to death with the information you're getting. And the trouble is you don't really know what it means. You know, a little tiny spike, is that a problem or is that something you've got to deal with? Or is it something that the man wouldn't even notice? So it, you can almost have too much data. Um, going through aircraft canopies, uh, the, the medics were telling us, was, was terrible um, because of the uh, spikes and that, uh, of accelerations. We did over a 1,000 emergency ejections through the canopy with very, very little ill effect. Um, but it gave them a, it got the man out much quicker, gave him a good chance of survival. Yes? Uh, John Hazel. Yeah. Um, the Hermes and uh, shuttle-type ejection seat, I assume that must, be, it must have been encapsulated in some, by some method. Mm. Yeah, it was pretty... Um, pretty was that the question? Well, I, I'm just wondering how you managed to do that. Uh, or is that still a bit... Uh... No, 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 no. It, um, actually, it, it was difficult to do it without copying Bob Stanley, American uh, guy. He came up with a very good capsule for the B-52 Hustler, where he had three of these capsules installed. And they were also in the XB-70, the uh, Valkyrie Mark III bomber. Um, and the idea was you had a, a series of shutters that were up normally, and you had this pretty complex seat that the, the pilot sat inside and uh, when the need came to eject uh, he operated the uh, typical handles on the sides and it shut these uh, shutters came down over him and turned the thing into a, a, a blunt object effectively. You were ejected from the aircraft, it stabilised with you still in this thing and, and in fact uh, brought you all the way down still in this capsule um, and it had... Um, Airbags underneath it to attenuate the impact, and uh, oh, it was it was all very very sophisticated. And of course, the Americans also did the uh, ejectable cockpit for the F-111. Uh, but the problems with this is that you need an awful lot of power to drive a, a cockpit from an aircraft. So you need great big rocket motors, you need great big parachutes, and you're loading the aeroplane up with all this stuff, um, adding a lot of weight to the aircraft. And we've always been under pressure to reduce weight. Um, Sometimes it's you know it's almost been too much. Um, I, I know that um, Steve uh, Roberts is, is 
I'm sure, under pressure all the time to save weight for JSF. And it was the same way back. Um, so we would have used a similar system. Um, it, it, it was very interesting. You're ejecting at very high altitude, um, at going at Mark 6 upwards. And it was going to top out at about 450,000 feet. You've got a terrific view. You know, and then the thing would come back in, come all the way down, and um, uh, you would separate from the seat and come down on a chute and then be recovered. Um, it was the only way you could do it because the, the, the speed was so high. Um, and uh, it was a fully automatic system, uh, including, you know, the ejection itself would have been initiated automatically by the vehicle exceeding certain parameters uh, during the flight, just like uh, JSF now. If it goes beyond a certain angle or a certain sink rate under certain conditions, the pilot's out um, because it, the plane can't be saved. I hope that answered the question. Mick Jeffries, does this JSF seat yep. use Russian technology? Uh, the Russians, are, it's a Russian concept, certainly. Um, the Russian, the, the, uh, the, the clever bit, if you like, that fire actually senses and fires a seat, I believe is based on, uh, work done by the Russians. They got it on the Yak, um, 39, the forger. Um, and, um, yeah, it's using the same type of technology. But the seat itself and the way it's being done is very different. Yeah, the Russians actually, uh, produce some interesting stuff. Yes. Yes, Angus Crawford. Just a question. What's the fastest that anybody has ever survived an ejection with a Martin Baker seat? Sorry, what was... Uh, the fastest. Oh, the fastest. The fastest speed that anybody survived an ejection. Uh, with a Martin Baker seat, um, it's interesting. There's only been 31 ejections above 600 knots out of 7,200. The last one we had above 600 knots was uh, 1988. So they were with old seats. I mean, they were sort of... I think the, the most modern seat was a Mark uh, 7. Um, the uh, fastest was um, well in excess of 600, uh, I think it was 725, something like that. A chap called Tony Svensson uh, testing an um, uh, Australian Mirage got into a spiral dive uh, at uh, extremely high speed with a Mark 4 seat and ejected. Um, the force of the uh, loads on his legs broke the leg garters, and I mean they take thousands of pounds. Um, so his legs were broken. Um, he had an arm flail, and uh, but he got a shoot and came down. Of course, he then had to land on broken legs, um, but he got away with it. And uh, he turned up every time Martin Baker had a party for ejectees and drank all the drink. <laughs> so um, um, poor old Tony died about two years ago. He he was uh, running a pony trekking business on Dartmoor. But uh, he went back to test flying and uh, had a, a very good career. But uh, you wouldn't, I mean, it was a seat that was designed for 600 knots and he was going very, very fast um, in that one. And was that a relatively low altitude? He was, so it was oh, high EAS or just high PAS? Well, low. Yeah. Zero. Right, yeah, we, we've had a couple of uh, zero zeros. Yeah. The the first one, we, we modified a, a, a seat in a Cougar, two-seat American trainer, and the, uh, they'd hardly got the seats installed, luckily. And uh, a student got in the back cockpit, because he was kind of instrument flying, and one of the things he had to do on his checklist was to check the blind flying hood. 
So he reaches up <laughs> and kaboom. And pilot, the instructor in the front, sort of absolutely shocked. And this seat went roaring off. Parachute opened and landed in, in front of the aircraft. And um, I believe he died of injuries inflicted by the instructor. <laughs> but so there you are, zero, zero. And it didn't need to be, it was just an accident. But thank goodness it was a zero, zero seat. Could I just intercede with a quick business question? Yeah. I think you've kept your manufacturing in the UK all the time. Have you ever been under pressure from the Americans in particular to uh, offset and uh, license and let them you know, build yeah. thousands of seats good, to good your design question. but in, in their country? Good question. Um, you may have noticed in the note that my last incarnation at Martin Baker was VP Martin Baker America. Um, yes, we did. We've, we've now got a plant in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Um, it was an interesting uh, situation. Um, I, I found out that the American uh, seat manufacturers were going to team up with the Russians. And this had been brought about largely by politicians. Um, when Gorbachev and Reagan uh, got to their detente and all the rest of it, it then moved into uh, the Clinton era. And um, uh, the, Ameri the Americans had to find a way of bringing the Russians in from the cold. And so they came up with 40 different technical or technology initiatives that they were going to work with the Russians on. And essentially, the Russians were going to develop this equipment and the American company would, uh, or some of them would manufacture under license, but a lot of it would be made in Russia. It was all trying to, to bring the uh, Russians on, on board. And uh, there was all sorts of kit, ships, propellers, you know, things that the Americans thought the Russians had a particular expertise in. And one of them was ejection seats. Um, and we were sort of up against people like Madeleine Albright, Secretary of uh, State, and so forth. Um, the situation was that gradually each one of these technologies fell by the wayside because American companies were going to lose out. They were going to lose their business, they were going to lose um, their technology, and all the rest of it, and so they go beetling off to their congressman and say, do you realise what's going to happen? We have to close the plant, and all these people are voters of yours. Um, and the congressman would then go to the State Department and say, you can't do that, you can't. And so they go, oh yeah, okay, and take it out. And so they got down to about two items left, one of which was the ejection seat, and of course it didn't matter that it was the ejection seat because Martin Baker was a foreign company. Um, I was working very... The, 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 the Navy didn't want this to happen. They were very, very incensed that they were being forced to uh, have a Russian ejection seat. Um, it would have been much modified to meet Russian requirements. Um, no, sorry, to meet uh, US re requirements. And it was, it was lovely, actually. Their chief designer, a chap called Guy Severin, um, he was a sort of Russian uh, Sir James Martin real fiery character and some of the things that he was being required to do like the seat you have to take the whole seat bucket assembly off take the seat apart in the cockpit carry it down ladders in bits and, and all this he said we're not going to do this it's all wrong and all. we were doing it we'd done it for years right since the phantom we'd had to live with that but he said he wouldn't change his seat to be like that. so it was he was Sir James all over again only in Russian um, anyway, I, I had meetings with some very senior people over here, um, 
uh, Chief of Defence Procurement, Minister for Defence Procurement, people like that, and they all said, sorry, we can't do anything. Um, uh, if the Americans want to spend their money like that, then, then we can't stop them if it's for American projects. Uh, Joint Strike Fighter was going to be one of them, and uh, it was going to be, a, um, they were going to install the Russian seat in Joint Strike Fighter. The Russians had been told that. Uh, and uh, the Americans were working on that, and there was a $130 million budget for that. And I was getting really quite desperate, and I went and saw um, a senior politician in the UK and said about this, and he said, what you need to do is go and see your congressman. And I said, we don't have one. He said, that's your problem. You better get one. And the only way you could do that was to be in America. And so we, we uh, bit the bullet. I went to Washington for five years, worked with the American uh, politicians and so forth, uh, and uh, gradually got it turned around. Um, the, the, you, you have to be very careful where you pick for your plant because you need it in a constituency where the guy's really got clout. Um, and it was good. I went to brief the chief of staff of the Air Force, and uh, I said, uh, you know, we've got our plant in Johnstown. He said, John P. Merthyr, head of acquisition. Yeah. He said, okay, right. And I said, we've got a, a support facility in uh, Boothwin, Pennsylvania. And he said, uh, is that Kurt Weldon, uh, chief of... Uh, I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, you've picked well, haven't you? So I said, where would you have put plants, general? And he said, exactly where you put them. <laughs> so, and suddenly it was amazing. Um, I was able to go in, see the Secretary of Defence, and uh, he, he got quite sort of annoyed with me and said, look, we've told you already, this is an initiative, we're supporting American industry, uh, the funding is for an American, for American industry, and, um, and that's the way it is. And I said, Jen, uh, with respect, sir, you haven't looked at my business card. Um, I'm the executive vice president for Martin Baker America. And he looked at it, and he was not a happy bunny. Um, but um, we asked for, we, we were demanded equal uh, rights with the Russians and with the American companies. And they had to do it. So they had to split the funding with us. Um, we already were working on seats that were fulfilling all of the requirements. The only thing wrong was it, it was a foreign ejection seat. Suddenly it was going to be an American ejection seat. And it made all the difference. It took quite, still took quite a while to turn it all around. But eventually the whole initiative with the Russian uh, program, which was a nonsense, it was reinventing the wheel, um, just fell by the wayside. Um, and um, they selected the uh, Martin Baker seat for JSF properly. They did it competitively. Um, still had to go through a complete formal acquisition process. Other companies bid for it. But we knew from the beginning we were leading on the technology. One last okay. one, which is a forward-looking one. Does the move towards unmanned aircraft pose any threat? Or are there always going to be so many manned service aircraft that you'll have a job forever? Well, I, yeah, I know. I thought it would be a, a threat. Um, you know, it, it, it was looking like the world was going only towards unmanned aircraft on the combat side. <clears throat> but I had meetings with the Admiral in charge of the U.S. Navy's uh, UAV programs or unmanned air vehicles. Um, and um, he said, no, we, we thought that initially, but it's going to be a very, very long time, if ever. 
he said there'll be there'll be combat aircraft in there. Um, it'll be a mix, and um, the chances are we'll use unmanned aircraft for the very high risk opening phase of the war. Day two, we want pilots in cockpits uh, out there. So yes, we're going to need ejection seats. Um, we might not need so many. Um, well, we'll just have to increase the price. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but we have also looked at systems and, and continue to look at systems for UAVs. Yeah. Yeah, you know, computers have got hearts and mummies as well, you know. So, uh, um, yeah, it, on one of them, Global Hawk, for example, we, yeah. I, I had uh, meetings with the people on, uh, at uh, Northrop Grumman. Yeah. Uh, that has a $10 million sensor package yeah. under that great big bubble at the front. And uh, the vast majority of its flying is not over enemy territory. And um, if they can get, if the aircraft goes wrong, and they lost one in fairly early days, uh, it's a great shame if they have to lose that $10 million package as well. Uh, they had spare airframes, but they didn't have spare sensor packages. So uh, if they could have recovered that, it was worthwhile. And, and we were looking at that, and I had very active uh, dialogue with Northrop Grumman to look at that. Um, in the event, we didn't go ahead with it. But there's, there's things there. And I think the company is uh, still in dialogue with a number of manufacturers. Mm, interesting. Thank you. Okay. Um, could I ask Peter Elliott um, if he could uh, propose a formal vote of thanks? Uh, what a remarkable story we have this evening. It's clear to me that Sir James Martin is one of those rare creatures, a talented, charismatic engineer, um, seems to have had from the early slides um, a flair for marketing. You notice the uh, sign on the end of his building proclaimed that Martin's aircraft works. <laughs> <laughs> and I suspect we've all learned at least something, and probably in many cases quite a lot from Brian's lecture this evening. Um, we all, of course, knew Martin Baker in the context of ejection seats, but Obviously, we now realise that ejection seats are perhaps the, the tip of the Martin Baker iceberg, or equally the icing on the cake of Martin Baker. I think, really, all I, the other thing I was going to say, Brian, was obviously thank you very much for the very interesting and entertaining evening. Um, I think we got the timing of this lecture slightly wrong. With all this talk of rockets, perhaps we should be having it on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would ask you to join me in thanking Brian once again.